we are going to begin. Um, I will open us in a word of prayer, and then we will we will jump in. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are always so grateful to to be brought into into your house, into the house of the Lord, and we do pray this morning that we would um, that you would cause us to to focus our minds, ready our hearts to to receive everything that that is prepared for us to engage in this morning and the the worship service in a few moments. Pray that 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 service would be glorifying to you and it would build up your people. Do pray for our time in, in Sunday school that we would grow in our knowledge of your word as we study this prayer in Philippians 1. Do pray for the other classes that that our, our children would, would be growing in their, their knowledge and love for your word and ultimately in their love for you. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to dive back into our study praying through the book Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And this is a, a second half of a lesson through chapter 7 and 8 of the book. And just to remind us, we, since we've been away from the, the study, this book has a very simple goal, to closely examine the prayers of the Apostle Paul so that we can shape our own prayer lives to, to model Paul's in some sense. So this book is a, is a guidebook of sorts of how to have Biblically rich, more biblically faithful prayer lives. And the ultimate goal, Carson keeps pointing this out, which is very helpful, the ultimate goal is not to have better, better prayer lives just for our own benefit, but, but to have more God-glorifying prayer lives as they are more faithful to, to God's Word. And one way we can do those things to, to have more faithful prayer life is to pray biblically faithful prayers. And that's the main goal of studying a book like this. It's is very practical. Practical tips for, for glorifying God by, by faithfully practicing the means He's given us to grow spiritually and to, and to expand the, the kingdom of God through gospel proclamation. And one of those means that God has given his people for those things is specifically the discipline of prayer. So this is a vitally important discipline and, and habit in the Christian life. And one thing we've seen throughout the book is that Carson gets very practical in his application of Paul's prayers or, or what, they, what are some of the implications for the Christian life spends a lot of time on that, and that's really what the issue is, or the, the content of chapters 7 and 8 of the book. They're, they're, they're written to be taken together, and they deal with the common excuses Christians give for not praying. And that's what we thought about last time we met. Remember, Carson went through, I think, six examples that he thought of, of, of just six common excuses that Christians give for not praying, for not engaging in prayer. 
And now as Carson moves to chapter 8, he's really seeking to give good responses of how we should respond when we find ourselves making excuses to not pray. Specifically, the, I think this, this chapter specifically deals with one of the last excuses he pointed out, which was the, the being content with spiritual mediocrity. Remember that one? Or, or this is the excuse he went to that is we're, we're just kind of content with being lukewarm in our faith or, or, or mediocre in some sense in, in our Christian life. And so we, we neglect to pray because we're, we're just kind of content where we are spiritually. And so Carson's response is to analyze the prayer we find from Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, which you can be turning there. And this portion of the lesson is going to have overlap with the end of the last lesson because I, I taught through these first two pages last time. But it'll be good to be reminded. Um, but I'll read a quote of why Carson thinks this prayer specifically is helpful as we think about the common excuses we give for, for not praying. Carson writes, few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us surmount the hurdles of spiritual dryness and lack of faith than the one in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. It can help us overcome our excuses for prayerlessness. And the reason for that, or at least the initial reason Carson gives, is that in this prayer, Paul is praying for what is excellent. He's praying for, some translations would say, the, the best things for the Philippians. And for believers to pursue those things, to pursue what, what is excellent, to, to contemplate on them. Which will inherently drive out some of our excuses to not pray. And so we read Paul's prayer, I'll just read verses 9 through 11. We read, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I think we can see this is very similar, very similarly structured to the, to the prayers that we've already seen from Paul. At one level, Paul's asking for the Philippians' love to abound more and more, which is very familiar if you've been reading this book or, or coming to these studies. This is a big idea and language that Paul uses in his prayers, that Christians' love would be growing specifically for one another. This is what he typically prays for Christians. But what Carson points out, that, that what makes this formulation of the prayer unique, is that the love for which Paul prays is not the end goal of the request, but the, the love is a means to an end, which is that their love would increase so that they, be, that they would be able to discern what is excellent. Right? Do you notice that? So though Paul is most definitely praying for the Philippians' love to increase more and more, Carson is arguing that the petition is closely tied to a different end, to a different end, which is that they may discern what is excellent. Now this is where 
Carson says this prayer can be a solution to overcome our excuses for not praying. And that's because Paul's not satisfied with what, what Carson calls a mediocre Christian life or a mediocre prayer life, or for the Philippians to be content with being spiritually dry or potentially having excuses for not praying. He desires for them, that's Paul, and, and for all Christians to think on, to contemplate, to pursue, to be able to discern what is excellent, to pursue excellent things. And so thinking back to our excuses, Carson brought up, I think this is an easy antidote to the I'm too busy to pray excuse. Because there's inherent value, there's, there's great benefit to, to pausing and to just contemplating, using our, our, our knowledge, our ability to think, to discern, to ascertain what is best. Right? We can never be too busy to, to dwell on and to contemplate the excellent things that Paul is calling us to here. So there's great benefit in the Christian life in doing that. And Paul thinks that so much so that, that that's why he's praying for it for the Philippians. And all this leads to, I think, the obvious question we should be asking of the text. What are the excellent things that we are to be dwelling on, that we are to be contemplating on? What are these best things, these excellent things? And Carson's really helpful here. He gives three clues. He, what he calls clues from the text that help us gain understanding of what Paul is talking about by this word, excellent things. And the first clue is that Paul assumes that if the Philippians are going to discern, if they're going to approve what is excellent, their love will have to abound more and more with, with knowledge and discernment. Meaning... The, the excellence to which Paul is praying for believers to pursue is not easily discerned. That's why he's praying that they would have discernment. <laughs> Meaning that the excellence, or, or because they, they need to grow, right? I think we can see this pretty clearly from the text, they need to grow in what? Knowledge. Knowledge and discernment. They, they need to grow in those things. He's saying the Philippians' love needs to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Carson writes helpfully of what this means. He says, perhaps we will get at Paul's point rather quickly if, we're, if we replace the phrase with the opposite qualities. So Paul does not pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity, or in stupidity and ham-fistedness, or in cheap sentimentality and myopic nostalgia, Right? He prays, rather, that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and discernment or, or depth of insight. Yes? Yeah. I think he, he's using the NIV, so I bet the NIV is in. Yeah. 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 Well, let's have a translation fight off. Let's go. <laughs> um, good question. The where where am I? No, it's okay. 
So the love for which Paul prays must be constrained by knowledge and, and discernment, meaning Christian love will be accompanied with knowledge and discernment. So another way to say that is that there is no Christian love without knowledge. And knowledge here, Carson is arguing, is really just a grasp of, of the gospel, a, a gospel knowledge, a grasp of the truth of God would be knowledge. So love without knowledge and discernment is what Carson calls a parody of itself. It's just not the real thing. It's not actual love. You can't love what you do not know. He writes, the Christian love for which Paul prays is regulated by knowledge of the gospel and comprehensive moral insight. Comprehensive moral insight, that's where we're coming from the word discernment. Being able to discern what is morally right and wrong. Right? The argument is this is true Christian love. This is what, what we need to be growing in through our, our prayers to the Lord. And again, the point is Christians must grow. We must grow in this type of love if we're able to discern what is excellent. So what is excellent, this is all still in part of his little first sub-point here, what is excellent must be hard to discern because that's why he's praying for the Christians to be able to discern it. it, it, it there must be a difficulty in the Christian life of being able to discern what are the best things since he's praying for it? It's really a simple um, hermeneutic that, that Carson's using here, but really effective. Carson writes in conclusion, Paul simply assumes that unless your love is abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, you will not be able to discern and approve what is best or what is excellent. In other words, if the discernment of what is best is utterly dependent on such multiplying love, we get a little light shed on the content of what is best, on the excellent things that Paul wants Christians to dwell on and to pursue. And really that hint just tells us that, that um, these excellent things are, are difficult to discern. Yes, John. He doesn't draw to Colossians 1, but those that... You, that spoiler alert, those are the excellent things, yes. Yes, that is his conclusion. Well done. Um, the second clue that um, Carson points out is that the actual meaning of the phrase translated as excellent things or, or best things is best understood in the context of the request of discernment. So Paul's thought here is there, there are a number of decisions we have to make in the Christian life that, that clearly, or that aren't clearly evil and good or, or right and wrong. There's, there's no moral right or moral wrong decision, so we must discern what is the best decision. We must discern what is best. So a requirement for knowing what is excellent or best is growing in knowledge and love, which allows us to discern what is excellent, and then to pursue what is excellent. And finally, the final clue gets at the, the I think gets at the actual meaning of the excellent things Christians are to discern. 
and this is the, the whole context of Philippians, and I think you could go to the other, Carson could have gone to Paul's other writings like Colossians. But if we look at the context of the rest of the letter, we get a good indication or insight into what Paul is meaning by these best things, these excellent things. So Carson goes to a place like Philippians 1.6, before he prayed in this chapter, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a big thematic verse in the rest of Philippians. And Carson argues from this verse we can see a key theme, again, that we see throughout Philippians, that is that, that in Paul's mind, he doesn't want to see mediocrity in the Philippians faith or, or a lukewarm, slow growth, but he, there's an expectation of growth in the Christian life. Uh, a, what, what Carson calls a positive market improvement in discipleship, what we call sanctification. It will be completed by the Lord on the day he returns. And Paul's confidence that the Lord will surely bring this work to completion, right, that's Philippians 1.6, the Lord is going to complete the work that he started in us, that's that work of spiritual maturity and growth to, into Christ's likeness. It, Paul's confidence in that truth doesn't negate the fact that, and Paul's thinking, of the, of the Christian's necessity to, to strive in growing in righteousness or to have resolution and, and determination to grow. So a part of this growing, a part of this sanctification in Philippians, I would say in the whole Bible, the New Testament, is, is a striving for spiritual growth and maturity. We see this also in Philippians 3, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes there, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Notice those words. Those, those verbs of, of working towards, of straining towards, of pressing on towards the ultimate goal of perfection in Christ. So Paul clearly has in mind a category of, of effort, of our effort in striving for, or you could say our discipline, in striving for our, and our sanctification, as the Lord is the one who accomplishes his purposes in us. Now, if we put all these clues together, we get a better idea, I think, of what the excellent things are, what the best things are we are to discern and to focus on. And they are what Carson calls the, the elemental characteristics of maturing Christian discipleship. That, or you could say the elements characteristic of maturing Christian discipleship. So these are... This is just what is the excellent things then are those things that grow us in our faith, that grow us spiritually, those things that, that lead to our growth in Christ. 
And this is a, a comprehensive way of understanding things. It's why our, our love needs to be shaped and formed by the knowledge of these excellent things that will grow us in Christ. Because if our, our hearts and minds are not um, desiring what is most beneficial for our spiritual growth, then we're not going to be able to discern what is excellent. It's comprehensive in the sense that it's a, a whole human. Our, our hearts, our minds all have to be aligned in this pursuit. We have to, our desires have to be changed. Our emotions have to be changed to, to want what is excellent, to want that spiritual growth that, that God is calling us to. Did you all hear Dennis? So half yes, half no. Okay. Um, he's saying that the language of approve in the text shows us kind of a, in the category of love. So it's not just that we have an intellectual agreement with the excellent things, but we approve it. Our, our, our desires, it's a, a desire word, right? Am I saying this correctly? It's like we, we approve it in our innermost being. We approve what is excellent. I think that's a really good, good point. Now, Carson points out here in this section of the chapter, it's a pretty radical call to spiritual excellence. It's essentially what Carson's arguing, Paul is arguing for. And Paul is expecting this of believers. And I think it would be good to just say a word of, of caution here, that we need to be careful here. Because Carson goes on for a couple pages in the book just asking really pointed questions that are, I think are meant to convict the reader if we are not pursuing those excellent things in the Christian life. And he's done this throughout the book. His point here is for us to analyze if we're truly growing in love and knowledge so we're able to discern what is excellent. Like he's trying to, to get at if we're actually doing this in the Christian life. But he makes clear his point is not that we would be just loaded with, with guilt. Because the truth of the matter is we, we, we all fail to one extent or another at at this calling, of, of, at spending our time, at, at making all choices and thoughts that are glorifying and pleasing to God, right? We don't always make the, the right choice that is beneficial for our spiritual growth. We just don't. This is why Carson writes here that, that he was hesitant I think this was very telling. He was hesitant to put all these paragraphs in this, this section that's seeking to convict us. Right? That's the purpose of the reason why he was writing these sections, to convict us to pursue what is excellent. But he's hesitant to put it in there because he doesn't want to just merely produce a feeling of guilt because he knows that mere feelings of guilt by themselves will not ultimately help us to make right God-glorifying decisions. Although guilt and shame can be a good motivating factor. It, it can't be the only primary reason that we're trying to pursue godliness. But if we remember the command to grow in love, then I think we can guard against kind of this, this guilt-driven obedience. Because as we grow in love for God and His ways, then more and more we'll want to, to dwell on, we'll want to approve, we'll want to discern that which is excellent, those best things, which can only be found in God's Word. This is why Paul is praying it for the Philippians. Because he, he knows that it's, it's only by 
he says this in, in verse 11, it's only through the work of Jesus Christ, it's only by God that we can have our, our hearts transformed to desire what is excellent. To have our hearts transformed by God's grace that desires then to make choices that, that are beneficial for our spiritual growth, that are, that are glorifying to God. So really what Paul is calling for and praying for is that Christians would use their, their time wisely Use the life that God has given us wisely and and growing in love and knowledge of God so that we can discern that which is excellent or discern what is is most beneficial for our ultimate spiritual growth and then to dwell on those things and to pursue those things and to do those things. Pause here for any questions or comments. Yeah, I think it's definitely assumed in like you said, in the context of Paul's right, who's he writing to? A church, right? This is for the church. Um, It could be helped. It would be helpful if Carson made that point more clear. I think he might be assuming it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So one particular benefit... And he kind of does talk about the church here. But one particular benefit of the, the Christian life that, that Carson points out and the way that Paul is praying for here is that it leaves a lot of room for wisdom and Christian freedom in the context of those, those Christian relationships. So I think he doesn't say it, but he is specifically talking about the context of, of church fellowship here. Because implicit in Paul's call to discern what is best which we've mentioned is not always clear. It's not always clear what is best or what is the most excellent things. So it's not decisions, again, between good and evil, or it's not always decisions between sin and righteousness. Those are, are very clear in Scripture, right? Christians are not free to sin. But I say the bulk of our decision-making, maybe not bulk, but a lot of our decision-making, is that the same as bulk? I don't know. Maybe less than 50%. Um, of our decision making is just kind of morally neutral things. It's not necessarily evil. It's not necessarily good. It might be better for one person, worse for one person. Um, this is kind of life. And this, this, this scripture, this prayer, I think is helpful as, as we think about this. Especially, Carson goes to the use of our time. So we need to grow in love and knowledge to know what is the best use of our time, but Paul doesn't lay out any specifics of how to fill up that time other than pursue those excellent things, discern what is excellent, pursue those excellent things, and just to to generally dwell on those things, which I think leaves room for a lot of freedom as each of us in step with the Spirit discern what is most profitable for ourselves. Being led by the Spirit, we may come to different conclusions on what is the best use of our time, given what season we're in, given a whole host of factors. So this is very practical because it helps us guard against this very nasty thing that can happen in a local church of of just the comparison game. The comparison game between different 
Christians. Because redeeming the times, which is really what, what Carson is arguing, Paul is, is arguing for here, redeeming the times may mean different things to different Christians. So one Christian may view relaxation time by memorizing scripture, you know, or reading a Puritan paperback, and that's how they, they use their leisure time. You know, another one perhaps might want to watch a sports game, ball game, a, a cooking show, whatever you watch, HGTV. And Carson's point is, would, would another Christian be less mature if they choose the, the second path? I think he writes well here. Would one, to, would one want to say that less mature Christians have actually fallen into sin just because they do not use their leisure time as profitable as you may want them to? I think it's a really helpful way to put it. Carson's point in all this is to say that, that Paul's prayer cuts through this type of thinking, this, this kind of comparison game that, that's very easy to fall into. Because what Paul wants is for Christians to pray for and then pursue what is excellent and be able to discern those things. Carson writes, Paul refuses to set up arbitrary set of checkpoints against which Christians are to measure themselves. He refuses to erect hoops through which believers must jump to be faithful. Rather, he simply prays to his Heavenly Father and asks him that these believers may pursue what is best, knowing full well that they cannot pursue excellence without transformed hearts and minds. He further specifies in his prayer that that God will make their love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they'll be able to discern what is best. I think it's a very good summary, actually, of this, this whole section, is that quote. But again, Carson ties this to the, the antidotes of overcoming our excuses for not praying or for our prayerlessness. And that is for Paul, he's not just satisfied with the, the status quo, or, or being a, a mediocre Christian, which is the word that, that Carson keeps bringing up. Rather, the way Paul viewed things was, was knowing that we are one day destined to be perfected when Christ returns, and then we must press on towards that goal. We must press forward to what we're destined to. And if that's true then we, we really can't afford to not pray. This type of, of meditation on the scriptures, on the prayer of scriptures, so specifically the one here in Philippians 1, can help us get out of our slumbers of prayerlessness. That's really Paul's, I mean, Carson's big aim here in this, this chapter. But then Car we, we can go to, to verse 10 and think about the, the day of the... The day of Christ, that's how Paul puts it. He prays for them to approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is something, again, that we've seen throughout Paul's prayers. That is praying with, with the long view in mind. We've said elsewhere that, that Paul often prays with an eternal perspective. This is exactly what we're seeing here again. And Carson's quick and right to point out that, that what Paul is doing here is, is he's not bringing up the day of final judgment, 
where Christ is going to come to judge the living and dead and to, to judge our works for, for Christ. He's not doing that to, to like threaten the Christians, to threaten the Philippians. He's not saying, as Carson writes, something like, you really must start showing more signs of righteous conduct that I've been talking to you about, or you may be caught out in the end and face horrible judgment, or at the very least have a great deal of explaining to do. That's not the tone of what Paul's doing here. It's not Paul's motivation to bring up the judgment day to produce guilt and fear in the Christians so that they pursue what is excellent. That's just not Paul's strategy. Rather, Paul's saying something more like that Christians must live with that final day in view. It's a goal to be attained, a goal to be pursuing, and live in light of that future day. Meaning they should live in such a way that they remember where their final destination is, what the final destination is, which is, as verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's where all of us in Christ are headed, to be completely righteous in the new heavens and the new earth, to be perfect as the Lord is perfect. And so this is part of the Christian call towards excellence, towards, towards growing in Christ-likeness. So as we think about prayer, Paul is praying that, that Christians might be on this earth, so, so in the here and now, Paul is praying that we would be here, what we will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. You could say we will be what we ought to be, where we, we are finally destined to be. Which is perfect in righteousness at the day of the Lord. Again, this is all of our futures in Christ. So, as, as we think about this text as a model for our prayer life, teaching us how to pray, what to pray for, then what we learn is that we should be praying for that which is, which is highest. Or, or best, you could say the, the, the most righteous things, the holiest things to be occurring in our life. So in Paul's prayer here that, that we would be able to discern what is excellent, I think it's closely tied to this eternal perspective of the coming day of the Lord. In short, what, what Carson argues is that Paul is praying for revival for the people of God. Revival in the sense of, of being fully devoted and pursuing what God has called us to, which is fruit, the fruit of righteousness. This is our calling. It's a radical commitment to God's ways, to God's word, and just to God, a devotion to him. And that is what he's praying for. But we can't miss, and I'm going to say this every lesson, we just cannot miss the very simple fact that Paul is praying this, right? So he's not simply just exhorting people to be better. He's not just saying, hey, be righteous. Okay, right? He, he's, he's saying it in the context of a prayer, which as I've said throughout this study, is very important for us to understand because it, it teaches us something implicit about our pursuit of righteousness. which is that we need God to work. We need Jesus 
to be the one to work in us, which means what we need to pray to him. Right? He's not simply exhorting people to be better, to, to pick up your bootstraps and will your way to holiness. He's not even berating the Philippians for their lack of revival or growth in holiness and devotion to God. No, what he's doing is the simple act of taking those requests to the Lord in prayer. Which again is the implicit strategy here from Paul is the belief that it's only through God that transformation occurs. It's only through God that that transformation occurs. Because most fundamentally this, this transformative and discerning love that, that leads to holiness that, that Paul is praying for, it only comes from the fruit of God's gracious work in us. But again, we know that just because God is the primary actor in our spiritual growth, that does not mean we play no, no part. Later in the same letter, Paul will write, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So the, the, the work of God in us results in our working out our, our salvation that God has wrought in us. Our working and striving towards holiness, towards righteousness. So it means actively killing sin. That takes active human effort. Or, or pursuing what is right and good. Again, takes active human discipline and effort and will. But with Paul's understanding, we know that any positive striving we make towards God and Christ-likeness is God working in us. So there's no ultimate credit we can take ever, because even in our striving, it is God's working in us. This is kind of one of the mysteries that we see throughout Scripture of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It plays out even in something as, as fundamental as Christian discipleship or, or, or Christian spiritual growth. Carson writes well here, he says, Judging by Paul's example, however much we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we must also acknowledge that our best efforts in this regard are nothing other than God's working in us, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's urgent that we ask God to work in us. You see the, the connection point he's trying to make? If that's true, then what's the, the, the most simple thing that we need to do? kind of the whole point of the study. Pray, right? If, if it is God who's the one, who's the ultimate one that works in us, we need to be praying to the one who works, the one who works in us. It is vital that we learn to pray this Paul with prayer. So I'll pause here. Any questions, comments? Dennis? Yeah. That's true. It's almost like Paul's consistent in his theology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. Um, anything else? In the, in the last section of the chapter, Carson spends a, a couple pages talking about one danger that can come from this, this understanding of praying for what is excellent and, and then pursuing what is excellent in the Christian life. And it's the danger of what, what he calls idolatrous perfection, or what I think we can just call perfectionism. Kind of this, this it's, I think it's a, a personality trait in some of us to be perfectionist, but it it's also can be a, a pretty difficult sin to, to kill as it becomes perfection becomes an, an idol that we pursue. 
So Carson gives several examples of different people in different situations who, who strive so much for what is good and even what is excellent that they end up going overboard and falling into what he's calling crippling perfection. So he tells a story of a preacher friend of his who was feeling burnt out in his 40s from preaching because he was so focused on crafting the perfect sermon week in, week out, that he just spent hours and hours and hours and hours just crafting the perfect sermon. And he was, by all accounts, a wonderful, great preacher. But at what expense? That he was completely burnt out, probably in the prime of his preaching age in his mid-40s. Or he tells the story of the, the mother and or, or wife at home who constantly insists that the house be spotless or, or perfect. And so what she does is she slaves for hours and hours every day to, to meet that standard in her home of a perfect spotless house. Right? Those two are good examples of, notice those are good things. Preaching a good sermon, that's really good. Having a well-ordered home, that's really good. But even those good things can be pursued in such a way with this, this perfectionist mindset that it's ultimately hurtful, that it's ultimately not good, that leads to burnout. Maybe we can think of several other examples. The, the, I think he points out the, the corporate executive who climbs the, the ladder by just his, his, his work ethic, but his, his, or the student who's just totally obsessed with making straight A's at all costs. They have this perfectionism in them that, they, that manifests in, in those ways. The point is, this perfectionism can come in many different ways in our, our life, but it's not what the Apostle Paul is advocating for in Philippians and what he's calling us to pursue excellence. Now, in, Paul's, or in Carson's warning of this, this is not then an excuse to the opposite extreme of laziness and lack of discipline and carelessness, right? There's an implicit calling in, in Philippians to, to be resolved to utilize our time and gifting for God's glory, which involves at the most basic level striving and and growing in, in holy conduct, righteous conduct. But this is where, where Paul is very careful. So he's praying that Christians would be able to discern what is best by growing in love and knowledge, but notice how this occurs at the end of verse 11, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here's the, the pretty clear acknowledgement of what I've been saying or what Carson's been arguing and what's so key in the Christian faith, that our growth, our, our spiritual growth, our, our growth in righteousness, our, our dwelling and, and praying for what is excellent, it only comes through Jesus Christ and his work in us, which the ultimate goal then is for the praise and glory of God. So I think this is the great guardrail against perfectionism. Or, or falling even into a workspace understanding of righteousness that, that's, that's common in the Christian life. The ultimate end of our growth and love and discernment and dwelling of what is excellent is for God's glory. It's not, it's not for us. 
It's not ultimately for us. It's for the praise and glory of God. Carson writes, If our pursuit of what is excellent, both in prayer and in our Christian lives more generally, is bound up with our own egos and with unarticulated notions of self-fulfillment, it is worthless. To the, to, the, to the degree that our pursuit of what is excellent is increasingly impelled by discerning love and directed to the glory and praise of God, so far are we joining the apostle in his prayers and learning to live with eternity values in view. So again, notice that, that the danger of perfectionism, a, a guardrail against that is to realize that our pursuit of excellent things is not ultimately for our self-fulfillment or for our, even our ultimate good, even though it is good for us. But it is for God's glory and God's praise. Carson ends the chapter dealing with, with several different examples of what this type of righteous living that is directed to the glory of God, that is through the work of Christ in us, what that actually looks like. So I think this is a really helpful section um, if you want to read it to get just very practical examples of what he has in mind. But one thing that, that we've mentioned earlier in this study that's just apparent in the Christian life is that it sometimes can be hard, very difficult to discern, even in ourselves, whether our labor for what is excellent, our pursuit of what is righteous, is ultimately for selfish motives or for God-glorifying motives. That's a hard thing even for us and our individual Christian lives to discern. And so one test Carson gives for us to assess our motives comes from an example he gives from the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'm just going to read this whole section because I think it's really powerful and, and it makes the point quite well, but you can read it again. Um, he writes, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the most influential preachers of the century. A few weeks before he died, someone asked him how, after decades of fruitful ministry and extraordinary activity, how he was coping now that he was suffering such serious weakness that it took much of his energy to move from his bed to his armchair and back. He replied in the words of Luke 10.20, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, do not tie your joy, your sense of well-being, to power in ministry. Your ministry can be taken from you. Tie your joy to the fact that you are known and loved by God. Tie it to your salvation. Tie it to the sublime truth that your name is written in heaven. That can never be taken from you. Lloyd-Jones added, I am perfectly content. So Carson takes this, this anecdote of Lloyd-Jones and he kind of makes a test for it on, on this last section. And the test is whether we can know if we are pursuing the excellent things we're called to for our own glory or for God's. It's to ask the question, if the things that I value are taken away, is my joy in the Lord still there? Is my joy in, in God still there? when these earthly things that I value are, are taken away, my, my, my time, my ability, my ministry, even very good things, my family, is my contentment still there? Right? These, these questions can help reveal for us where our ultimate hope is, where our, our ultimate joy is, where our hope lies. 
And it can help reveal whether our pursuit of the Christian life, the pursuit of these best things, these excellent things that, that Paul is calling us to, whether they're rooted in, in God's ultimate glory or rooted in our ultimate glory. I think it's a really good, good exercise to, to be praying through and to just be thinking through. Will we be content when we lose even good earthly blessings? So, just in conclusion, that's the prayer of Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that we would learn to ask God more and more that our love may abound more in knowledge so that we would be able to discern what is excellent, what is, what is beneficial for our sanctification, in order that we may be blameless on the day of the Lord, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus for the praise and glory of God alone. That's the, that's the, the prayer. And that's our model. Next week, we are going to go to chapter 9, which is going to deal with the very simple topic, that's a joke, of God's sovereignty and prayer, the relationship of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in prayer. And, and Ken White will be leading us in that study. So any final questions or comments?